Yes, good people, it's Francis here from Let's Do Humans podcast. This is just a quick announcement, just to encourage everybody here that's listening to our podcast right now, just to ensure that you subscribe and you follow us on all of the various platforms out there that produce podcasts, that's subscribing to us on YouTube, following us on iTunes and Spotify. I mean, follow us, make sure that you share our content and continue your support, that'll be greatly appreciated. That's Let's Do Humans, L-E-T-S-D-O-H-U-M-A-N-S, Let's Do Humans, one word. Appreciate all of your support. Stay blessed, good people. They were like, where does tribalism come from, Francis? Like, how can we explain how we behave and why we're so divided and, and why we're under the assumption that the world is such a horrible place? And one of them sent through the video whilst we were holding um, our Zoom meeting. And they were like, check out this guy. He'd be fantastic for the podcast. And he might be able to explain some of the issues that we're going through. And I managed sure. to watch a couple of your videos and I'll come across your book, which I'm going to purchase very soon. Or I'm definitely going to get an get audio. the audio book. I'm definitely yeah. going to get the audiobook on this one. But um, that's the reason I wanted you on the podcast. So first of all, I'd like to welcome you. It's morning here, but evening on your end. And um, yeah, I just wanted to sort of like, like dab, get into your brain a bit and um, have you explain to us the, where, how we got to where we are. So in terms of like um, our, our social beings, like how did humans develop to become the people we are today? Sure, sure. I'd be happy to. Yeah. So... So should we dive in? How would you like to start? Yes, please. Yeah, if we just dive in, if you first of all tell us a bit about yourself and the book that you wrote and then also expand into like us humans as social beings. Sure. So um, my name is Bill Von Hippel and I'm a social psychologist, which means I kind of study just the way humans are and the way they interact with each other without focusing on like trying to help people with their problems, but just understanding everyday events. And I've always been interested in intergroup relationships and you know what causes groups to get along well and what causes them to often experience friction. And there's a lot of very interesting work on that in my field, but I started to wonder, well, what are the origins of this? Where does it come from? And in trying to, and, and I started to wonder the origins of lots of kinds of social behavior. And so I started to become very interested in evolutionary history. And so I spent about the last maybe dozen years, maybe 15 years, um, taking a deep dive into understanding our evolutionary past with an eye towards seeing how that can inform the way we are today, how can it, it can help us understand the way human nature is now, the way we interact with each other across group boundaries, and even in other kinds of ways as well. And so that's what led to my book, which is called The Social Leap. And it's the book is about how our sociality is actually what led to our big brain. It's what made yeah. us so smart, but it's also what saved us on the savannah. And so it's a story of kind of getting thrown out of the trees, so to speak. You know, our, our ancestors were very chimp-like about 6 million years ago, but the trees, the rainforest dried up and we were forced out onto the savannah. And so how do we turn from these sort of chimp-like apes into the humans that we are today? And, and what role does sociality play in all that? And then what role does tribalism play that as, in that as well? And that's kind of the big picture of what I've been working yeah. on. Amazing. So how, how do we develop from, um, so coming from the trees down onto the, um, onto the surface now, um, how does that develop into social um, interaction? So what was the okay. need for the social interaction initially? Yeah. Okay, so good question. So if you look at our, our um, the closest 
and closest cousins we have to what our ancestors would look like are chimpanzees today. And from all we can tell, although they've changed a bit in the last six million years, they pretty much look like what our ancestors would have looked like. And so we can use them as a guide for, well, where did we come from? And chimpanzees are, they're very clever, you know, um, compared to most other animals, mm -hmm. but they don't cooperate very well. They don't work together very well. In fact, on average, they prefer to do things alone. Um, like if they're trying to accomplish something new or get food or something like that, and they're quite competitive with each other. And so the question is sort of what happened to us that shifted us away from that model? And the because the Great African Rift Valley that runs from you know the Red Sea down to the coast of Mozambique, Africa is literally being torn in half. Well, a big piece and a small piece. The Somali plate is moving down to the lower right. The rest of Africa is moving up to the left. And the consequence of that on the east side of the Rift Valley is that for the last 30 million years, the rainforest has been drying out repeatedly over and over as that land upwells, like Ethiopia, Somalia, Tanzania, Kenya. Those areas are, are much of them are quite a bit of latitude or altitude. And the consequence is the rainforest shifts to savanna. So here we have these chimpanzee-like animals, our ancestors, who were in the trees and doing really well because they're dynamic in the trees. Nothing can eat them, nothing can catch them. And now they're shoved out onto the ground where they're easy prey for lions, leopards, um, even saber-toothed cats that lived in those days um, on the East African they? savanna. Yeah, they're big and unfriendly. Well, they would have wanted to eat us. And so the for, for about three million years, what the fossil record suggests is that we looked pretty chimp-like and all we did was skulk around on the edges of the savanna, probably doing what the very few savanna chimpanzees do today, which is they don't they try not to wander too far from trees and they try to always have an eye out and they travel in slightly larger groups in order to make sure that they can stay safe. But about three and a half million years ago, we had by then evolved into Australopithecines. Now their brain is barely larger than the brain of a chimpanzee. They, chimp has about a 380 gram brain, they have about a 450 gram brain. So they look pretty chimp-like, but they walked upright. Yeah. And and because they were bipedal, walking upright, they had gained this capacity to rotate their body. Um, they gained greater flexibility in their arms. And that led to an ability to throw. Now, chimpanzees don't throw very well, but australopithecines have um, uh, an anatomy much closer to ours. And when we throw, what you don't realize is you're actually generating elastic energy. When you step forward with the opposite leg and your hips spin and then your shoulder and then your hand at the very end, it's like the snapping of a rubber band across your ligaments, tendons, and muscles. And so even though chimps are way stronger than we are pound for pound, we throw way better than we, than they do. Is it the accuracy and that's, that's most important or is it the power generator? Accuracy and speed, it's both. Oh. I remember when I was, um, I used to teach at Ohio, in Ohio, at Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio in the States. And I remember there was a, a kid rocked up next to me in the state fair and we were in one of those nets where you can throw a baseball. Yeah. <laughs> and I was, I was an adult and I'm throwing as hard as I can and I'm throwing maybe 50 miles an hour. Yeah. And this little guy who must weigh 85 pounds, doesn't have, he's prepubescent, he doesn't have any muscle on his entire body, <laughs> is throwing the ball 65 miles an hour. Wow. Like much better than I, and with great accuracy because he's just yeah. whipping it out there really with you know practice and he's using the proper rotation and spin and that sort of snapping motion. He's literally the size of an Australopithecus. And so... What I realized then is, wow, you you know, throwing could be a really important way to protect yourself. And in fact, yeah. it's literally the invention of the single most military invention in all of history, which is the capacity to kill at a distance. Yeah. And so, you know, if a lion attacked a bunch of us and all we had were stones in our hand, we could beat it to death, but a lot of us are going to die. Most definitely. But if we and could, maimed. <laughs> yeah. 
Exactly. We'd be lion food. But if we could throw it rocks at it and keep it from getting to us, we could kill it if there's enough of us before it ever had a chance to get close to us. And so that was this extraordinary evolutionary pressure on our ancestors to cooperate. And those ancestors who couldn't figure it out, who couldn't cooperate, well, they disappeared. And the ancestors who figured it out, who learned, oh, cooperation works best. If we all work together and throw stones at these lions, we're going to all survive. They're the ones who ended up being our ancestors. And one of the markers you can see to that is the whites in our eyes. If you look at a chimpanzee, their eyes are all brown. Oh, now, yes. I've noticed that. What's the significance of that? Well, so they're really clever, and they can tell what another chimpanzee could see from their vantage point. And so they literally hide that information by making their eyes brown, so it's very difficult to see which way they look. But as a human, we've evolved these white sclera to our eyes, which advertise the direction of our gaze. So if you and I are sitting around the campfire and I go like that, yeah. instantly you know I've looked over there. And so what that tells us is that, by and large, you and I must be highly likely to cooperate because I want you to know what I'm looking at. Because That's if it's a predator, yeah. you'll, you'll help me kill it. And if it's prey, you'll help me grab it, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas chimpanzees don't want their fellow group members to know what they're looking at because they want to sneak and grab it before anybody else does. And so it's this sign, this visual sign on our bodies that of our fundamentally cooperative nature. Yeah, that's 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 quite intriguing to know because um, I've always noticed the eyes and um, within the chimpanzees, but I didn't actually know the the use of it. But but why would they want to try and hide um, from the rest of the group if they're trying to collaborate? Well, well, so, so they don't collaborate very well. So if you give if there's food for a chimpanzee, it wants to sneak in and eat as much as it can before anybody notices. Oh, okay. If there's a female who he might be interested, he wants to sneak off with her. He doesn't want the fellow group members to know because they're going to fight over it. Yeah. Whereas he, we've evolved away from that. We're now we, we fundamentally become more cooperative. And that cooperative nature allows us to achieve a whole lot more than a chimpanzee can ever achieve. You know, they're still sitting in the trees, in the hot sun and in the cold rain, exactly where we left them six million years ago. And look at us, you and I are many thousands of miles apart. We're sitting in these lovely temperature controlled homes with yeah. clothing to keep us warm. We, we've, we've moved way away from there and it's our cooperative nature that enabled that. Enabled it caused that. us to start to work together as a group because we can work together as a group, we could hunt more effectively. That brings in more calories. It allows us to build an even bigger brain so we can develop better strategies. And the bigger brain gives us more calories still. And it allows us to pay the rent on a brain that now uses 20% of our metabolic energy that yeah. no other animal could afford, but that we can afford because we work so well together. That's amazing. Um, so it seems like initially we were quite um, collaborative um, creatures. So how, how did that develop into sort of suspicion and a divide within the tribes? Yeah, great question. So how is it that we move away from chimpanzees, we become super cooperative, but yet we're so violent with each other? Yeah. And it turns out that if you look at, at human violence rates compared to chimpanzee violence rates, if you look at how, how much we physically aggress against people who are in our group, chimpanzees are about 500 times as aggressive as we are. They're 500 times more likely to get into physical conflict with members of their own group. But if you look at the amount of conflict we have between groups, we are exactly as violent as a chimpanzee. We have not gotten any more domesticated, softer, yeah. friendly, or whatever word you want to use. And so then the question is why? Well, once we got to Homo erectus, now we've, you know, going from Australopithecines then, um, about another million, million and a half years forward, we now get to an ancestor whose brain is still quite a bit smaller than ours, but about 960 grams, but it's it's an ancestor who looks a lot like us. They, you know, if you saw a Homo erectus person at a zoo, you'd think they're a fellow zoo attender. You wouldn't think they belong behind the bars like you would if you saw an Australian. They'd be a bit more muscly than us, wouldn't they? Yeah, they'd be they'd be a little more muscular. They'd look a little rough, the kind of caveman <laughs> look. 
But um, nonetheless, they would they're identifiably human. And by the time we get to them, we have really good evidence that they have division of labor. And I can go through the evidence if, you'd, if you're interested. But we've, yeah. we also have really good evidence for the first time on this planet of an animal, of a being who can plan for a future with unfelt needs. Okay. So like a chimpanzee can never imagine a future that's not the way the present is. Yeah. So if they're not hungry, they can't ever imagine they'll be hungry again. And so they won't store their food. If they're hungry, they'll never imagine they'll that they live won't in the moment, in, in essence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They live totally in the moment. And by the time we get to Homo erectus, we now see the first evidence that they don't. And for example, one of the things that we see is that the stone tools that they made um, are carried great distances from where they're acquired and, and originally sharpened. Well, that's an animal that clearly realizes, or it's an individual that realizes, I'll want to use this again. I'll bring it with me. Yeah. Whereas when we look at the older stone tools that were made before Homo erectus, they're never brought any distance from where they're made. So it's probably the case that whoever made them sharpened the rock a little, cut whatever it needed, threw it out. Couldn't imagine it would ever need it again. Now, now what that means is you've got, and we also see signs of division of labor. So you've got a being who can plan for the future, who can envision a different future than it is now, and who can have division of labor. Well, that leads to where we are now. That, that's what brings us to the top of the food chain. You can plan a hunt of a much bigger animal than you are by trapping it or getting it to run into a trap, you know, into a, a, over a cliff or whatever you want, right? And, and what that means is that no longer were we really predated on by the other animals in the savannah. Rather, we were the, the kings of the jungle, so to speak. We were the ones who were the top predator. What was the single most we, important factor in that? Was that, was that the, the weapon, the weaponization of... Um, well, not just the weapons, or, but the capacity to work together in a planned, coordinated hunt yeah. with division of labor. Like if you watch chimpanzees hunt monkeys, they're pretty good at it. They'll come in from every side and the monkeys have more difficulty escaping, but they can't plan it. They can't say, you go over there, I'll be over here, I'll chase them and you'll grab when you... Go. They're incapable of that. Whereas we can do that. We can say, all right, you know, imagine that you and I and 20 of our best friends are all suddenly dropped into the middle of the forest. Yeah. Well, we'd be pretty pumped out at first, but then we'd say, okay, we're going to have to make the best of this. Let's yeah. sharpen some sticks. You guys run along there. We'll come, you know, we'd figure it out. They can't do that. And so it's that capacity to work together and to plan and then to engage in division of labor. And what that did is it brought us to the top of the food chain meaning that there's no other animal that's a threat to us anymore, at least when we're in our group. Like a mastodon or a saber-toothed tiger could still kill us when we're by ourselves. Yeah. But when we're with our group, we're gonna, if something comes after us, we're going to end up eating it for dinner. With the single one exception, there's one other animal that could take us on, and that's other humans. Because they also are in groups. They also have division of labor. They can also plan. And so now we start to see the most important kind of conflict that our ancestors had were with in the case of Homo erectus, with other Homo erectus, and once we get to Homo sapiens, with other Homo sapiens. Yeah. Now, it doesn't mean we're always in conflict. When two groups of Homo sapiens come into contact with each other, sometimes it's friendly, but sometimes it's not. And so we evolved this tendency to cooperate, but very quickly it became sharply defined by cooperating with our own group and not with other groups, because anyone who blindly cooperated with other groups could easily find themselves killed or enslaved by a group that they encountered who didn't have their best interest in mind. Was the fight usually a, ca um, a case for resources and the protection of resources? It's, it's very often that way. So if you yeah. look um, at the few hunter-gatherers that, that still exist, or if you go back in history when we have a lot more encounters with hunter-gatherers um, who have still following a hunter-gathering way of life, there was often conflict over the best hunting grounds, over the places with the best water resources. 
Um, and that conflict led people to make crazy decisions, not crazy, but, but quite striking decisions. So one of my favorite examples is if you travel around the Pacific or the, the Pacific Southwest of the United States, you see all these cliff dwellings. They're people who literally lived in the edges of cliffs where if you're a toddler and you make a bad move, you're going to fall down and die. Now, why would anybody choose to live on the side of a cliff when they could live down in the valley below? Well, what that tells us is probably whoever lived down in the valley below was pretty aggressive, pretty warlike, and they had driven these people away into this inferior environment where they could stay safe, but at great cost. And so that's what we ended up fighting over. We ended up fighting over resources. Now, we we tend, when we look at the history of human exploration, you know, we left Africa around 100,000 years ago, Homo sapiens did, and we left in earnest about 80,000 years ago and just traveled all over the world. And when you look at that, you, part of what you, you, you're sort of amazed by the bravery of these people who did that, right? But I suspect that half the people were leaving because they were brave and they were curious to see what's out there, and half the people were leaving because they're scared of the group behind them. Yeah. And they're thinking, I better get out of here because those guys behind me are really tough and whatever's ahead yeah. of me will hopefully not be as bad. Yeah. Um, so in, in how important is, is the past in determining sort of like um, our future and also what, what, what impact has it had on our present? So in terms of like the tribalism, the divide and, and then also the migration. Yeah. So these things have a big impact. Now, the key thing to keep in mind is that we inherit a psychological proclivity. We inherit a tendency to do things a certain way, but we don't inherit a demand that we behave in a certain way. Lots of people, when they think about the way our genes influence our behavior, they think that it's some kind of idea of genetic determinism, that if I have a gene to be aggressive, I'll always be aggressive. If I have a gene to be kind, I'll always be kind. It, it, but it doesn't work that way. Our genes give us a nudge because those are the genes that the, uh, the genes that made us successful are the ones that get passed on. And because they made us successful, they tend to push you in a certain direction. But if you think about one of our strongest proclivities, it's the human desire for sex, to procreate. Because, of course, any of our ancestors who didn't want to have sex never had kids, and mm. that lack of desire in having sex never gets passed on. But even despite that fact, you still have people who, for religious or other reasons, decide they're just not going to have sex. And sometimes they fail, but often they succeed. Mm. So if our genes can't make us have sex, they can't make us do anything. They can nudge us in a certain direction. They can make us kind of want to have sex, but they can't demand that out of our behavior. That in the end is up to us and all the factors that make us who we are, right? So the same holds for our tendency to have intergroup biases. Now, all of us have this inherited tendency to often be very friendly because remember, whenever you encountered another group, it wasn't a guarantee that they were going to be aggressive. They might be a real plus. They might trade with you. They might tell you how to survive in the local environment. Maybe some of the women or men would shift groups so that there's less inbreeding. There's real advantages to encountering another group. But sometimes they were going to be aggressive. Sometimes they were going to come into conflict with you. And as a consequence, we're very ready to become very racist or prejudiced or any other ist that you want if the group that we're interacting with suddenly is in conflict with us. Um, I remember the most notable example in my lifetime was when uh, the first Gulf War started. So this is Bush yeah. the senior was president of the United States, and Iraq had gone into Kuwait, and now the Americans were leading this coalition against the Iraqis. And I was, uh, I was teaching at Ohio State University at the time, and I went to school one day, and this guy was wearing a t-shirt, and in the t-shirt, there was a picture in the middle of it that looked like it was, the, the picture had a scope on it, like a, a crosshatch, like they're looking through the scope of a rifle. Yeah. And it was this caricature of an Arab, like, you know, the kind of thing that you draw as a very racist you cartoon. You to the university. 
he wore this to school oh. and it said on it and, and then the caption underneath it was even worse it said um i came all this way to smoke a camel wow. and obviously what the notion is that, that he's going to gun down that person and kill them yeah now i promise you that a month prior before the uh, the gulf war the person had no opinion whatsoever about arabs positive or negative probably yeah. probably kind of wanted to go there and try the tea and meet the people and see the pyramids and all that but now suddenly he's in conflict with those people and even people he's probably never met never had an opinion about before now he feels really negative about is that him and, protecting and his own this, tribe during the time of conflict is that is that what yeah that's that, that's right that's that's what that is now you can resist it but it's hard. And and another piece of evidence I remember very distinctly from that time was I was watching a hockey game on TV when the land war actually started. And I don't know if you remember what happened, but the Allied troops, the coalition that George Bush had built, yeah. um, um, marched into Iraq by – they had these – um, militarized bulldozers that literally buried the people who were in the trenches while simultaneously they're shooting over the top of the trenches with like 50 millimeter bullets or even larger. Mm -hmm. So if you stuck your head up, you were, you were chopped in half. If you didn't, you were buried alive. And I, I don't remember the numbers anymore, but let's say 100,000 Iraqis died that day, who I promise you did not vote for Saddam Hussein, did not want to be on the front lines facing this massive overwhelming force and were fathers and brothers and sons and all that. And they announced that we had gone in and destroyed them with only like two or three coalition deaths. And the audience in the ice skating rink at the hockey game was cheering and waving the flag. Wow. They were happy as clams. There wasn't a single person going, look, I'm glad that we won and we didn't have any losses, but what a travesty for the other side because we didn't evolve to feel that way. We evolved when we're in conflict to not care about the other side. You know, anyone who worries too much about their enemy is somebody who's not going to be ruthless enough and they're going to be killed themselves. So that's, that's, it sounds like it's innately built in us to be more empathetic to our own, especially in times of conflict. And it's hard for us to yes. care for the other. So even if a war or let's say a divide is um, artificially manu manufactured or constructed, that can cause this divide to happen within society automatically. Immediately, yeah. Very yeah. instantaneously, you start to feel a dislike for this side. You feel aggressive toward them. You feel that they're less than human. You And this is more common among men than it is among women, although both sides show it. But of mm. course, in our ancestral past, males were much more likely to be warriors than mm. females. And so this kind of prejudicial, racist, discriminatory behavior tends to well up in men more quickly than it does in women. Yeah. But it, it makes evolutionary sense. Now, that doesn't mean you can't resist it. It just means you need to be very aware of it. And so when these things happen, I can find myself getting caught up in it. And I say, wait a minute, you know, well, I have nothing against these people. Let's pause and reflect on what's actually going on here. But it's not easy to do. You have to stop yourself from this automatic bias where, you know, right now the Brits and the Germans and the Americans and the Japanese all get along famously. Mm. 50 years ago, not so much, right? So and, and 60 years ago. And so, boy, it's quite a, a lot more years than that. So 80 years ago, not so much. And um, and so at that time, they would have immediately hated each other. And then when the war is over, they can go back to being friends again. It's this crazy thing where if you look at the history of almost any country on earth, you've got this history of hating each other, friends again, hating each other, yeah. you know, because conflict just brings it out in us automatically. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting because I had an honest conversation with a, 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 a white female friend of mine regarding this sort of like innately built tribalistic um, siding. So I, I, gave a, I gave an example and I was like, I, I love boxing. I love combat sports. And um, I, I always say whenever there's two fighters fighting, one black, one white, even, even if I'm supporting a white person in, in regards to maybe he's from my country. So let's say, um, for example, Tyson Fury was fighting um, Wilder. 
Um, I prefer Tyson Fury. He's, he, he represents my country. I like him more as a person. But I also feel a way when he's beating up Wilder. There's something in yeah. me that, 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 that comes out. I'm like, ooh, I don't like the idea of my kind being beaten up by yeah. another kind, even though I'm supporting Tyson Fury and I want Tyson Fury to win. So bring that back forward a bit. Um, Tyson Fury ended up winning the fight and I was happy because I supported Tyson Fury as a fighter, but also feel bad for someone of my race losing the fight. Yeah. And then I said, bring him back forward now. Now we've got a fight coming up between Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua. Now both of these guys are British. So now it's like it's not divided by <laughs> the nation anymore. Right. And it comes down to your allegiance. So even though I might prefer Tyson Fury as a fighter, I have a, in, internally within me, I have a stronger affiliation to Anthony Joshua because he looks like me and he's off my race. So yeah. it's, 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 a, it's such a tricky conflict to sort of get around in your head. And when you, when you have that type of conversation in public, especially in this current sphere that we're in, either get shut down as either straight up racism or um, unwarranted bias. And we kind of deny that innate thing within us that, that stirs up. And when I had this conversation with my white friend, she was like, oh, I kind of feel the same way sometimes. And she, she felt right. free to say it only because I'd opened yeah, up about how I feel it first. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's... it's, it's is, is racism in that preferential? Is it is it is it learned as well? Can it be learned, or is it wholly, or is it strictly tribalist? No, no, it definitely can be learned as well. And of course, you see that all the time, where where um, children who, um, especially in a very uh, mixed, uh, in a cosmopolitan society, mixed race, mm. mixed religion, children often can be very confused. I remember a friend of mine who's black but very light skinned black. Mm. was her best friend was white and we you know i'm quite a bit older than you so this is back in the 60s and she her white friend invited her to come home from school and when she got there her father was like you can't play with her wow. and you know this is quite remarkable in today's world but mm. unfortunately it's what happened and, and her friend was like why and she goes she's black she she has to go home and so my friend who was black went home but didn't know she was black because her skin's not that dark right and yeah. she was like Going around, she told me, she's like going around the house going, what, what color is this, mom? And mm. do I misunderstand what it means? And so finally, her mom's like, why are you asking me this? And then she told her the story. She's like, okay, let me explain to you what's going on here. And so that kid had no idea, had never thought about the race of her friend. It meant nothing to her. Um, she probably felt like, you know, we're all in Mrs. Trickett's class in grade yes. school. We're the same group. So we don't automatically latch on to anything. We don't automatically latch on to color. We don't automatically latch on to accent, language, whatever. But those things are available if things go a little bit wrong. Yeah. And so they they serve as as um, points of conflict when um, when you start to code things that way. Now, uh, in, in your case, you have this example where the person's both in group and out group, yeah. and that actually turns out to be one of the best things to fix the problem. Because when you've got, you know, everybody in America loves Michael Jordan, everybody mm -hmm. in America loves Prince. You know, you you could go through a lot of of members of different racial groups who everybody feels like that's us, that's part of our group, and it goes a long way toward erasing some of the boundaries that are there. Because the one of the key things to remember is that our ancestors never encountered people of different color. They could only, all they could ever do was walk. And so when they walked out of Africa, they were all dark skinned. And then we interbred with Neanderthals in, um, in Arabia and again on the way to China and again on the way when we took a left turn and went to Europe. And slowly, those of us who left Africa, our color changed. But it took a long time. Uh, it was interbreeding and, and just genetic drift and other factors that got us there. So nobody ever walked around if they were white skinned and saw black skinned persons. So there's no inherent 
animosity by skin color. The only inherent animosity that ever existed would have been really about accent. So you and I are noodling around somewhere on the savannah. And if you, if I see you and I don't know you, but you speak just the same way I do, I go, oh, he's, he's one of us. Yeah. He's not really a threat. But if you speak a bit different, I'm like, uh-oh, this guy may be opportunity and he may be threat. Yeah. And so the consequence of that today is that we're very prepared to see all these different ways of being different as, as different, but we're also prepared to ignore them and say, you know, you and I are both Jets fans. We both love Liverpool, you know, whatever yeah. it is that we, and we, we just all in it together. Yeah. But how do we do that on a national level? Because I mean, so, so tribalism in, in, in sports works fantastic. Like, so I'm, I'm a huge Arsenal fan here in the UK and I, uh-huh. I, I used, I used to be a season ticket holder. And, um, when we when when you get there, you could be on a side with like I don't know fifty thousand Arsenal fans. We're all one big family. When Arsenal scores, we all go crazy, hugging and kissing each other. And these are people that you might not come across in your day to day life because you're com- completely different. But how, how can we possibly replicate that on a larger scale? Yeah, or is that's it being replicated, goal, right? but we're just not attaching ourselves to it? It, it is sometimes. So right now, if you go to an Arsenal game, you're a fellow Arsenal fan, and you feel a bond to them that you don't feel when you're just shopping and they're on the other side of the cash register. But now you travel to, let's say you're on vacation and you've gone, you've, you've left and you're somewhere else in Europe or, or wherever, and now you hear somebody with your same accent. Well, you hear them every day when you're home. You would never go, oh, my brother, you share my accent. Mm-hmm. But now when you hear them far away, you go, hey, where are you from? Oh, I'm the same part of London. And then you become friends because whenever you're kind of in a minority, that identity becomes important. When you're in the majority, that identity doesn't matter. So what that means is that a black man in Africa doesn't necessarily feel that black because everybody around him is too. He may feel like he's Ghanaian or he may feel like he identifies with his ethnic group or whatever. But when he now travels outside that continent and now he's in the minority, everybody around him white, and he sees another person who has the same skin color, he'll feel a bond to that person. We all do that. We do it whether it's our sport, you know, our sport team or our skin color or accent or anything. And so the thing is that when everybody who surrounds us is the same as us, that's not a meaningful basis of our group identity unless our group is in conflict with another. And then it's a very meaningful one. And so, you know, at the end of World War II, you look at the people all over America and Europe and, and the Allied forces hugging and kissing each other all over the streets everywhere because yeah. they're all now one big group and they yeah, just won. Yeah, and it's over. And then the Kahneman enemy disappears. And now those two people who are hugging and kissing each other can't get along anymore. And they're like, well, you yeah. you know, you owe me this. And and, and that's human nature. We, we bicker a bit when we're in groups together. We try our best to get along. And when there's an outside force that threatens us, we immediately forget our differences. Because you and I may be bickering and we may be arguing about who – who owes who $5 from last time we were out or something like that. But now when somebody comes along and wants to knock both of our heads, we're going to put our differences aside and yeah. deal with that external threat. Yeah. And so external threats go a long way toward, toward bringing us together. It, it, it kind of sounds a bit more like a doomsday um, revelation because it's like, as we were talking about initially before we started the podcast in regards to like um, aliens being next on the menu for 2020, if there was to be an alien invasion, that's probably the only time we'll be able to... Yes. Sort of this current cultural divide but um absolutely one of the questions which was being put to me by um the the group i um, I had a meeting with recently on zoom was that are are things really that bad in the world as it seems at the moment in regards to like the the tribalistic divide amongst the the races and the groups look yes and no um it's it's bad right now because one of the things that i think even has made the current climate worse is that pandemics are different from other kinds of threats because 
I could get sick from anybody. And so pandemics tend to get us to be very group oriented. The, the, you know, we tend to think about predators as our big threat on the savannah or our big threat even in, you know, up until very recently, but predators have never been as big of a threat to us as pathogens. You know, there's the occasional lion that wanders by that might eat you, but there's pathogens all the time. And so we've evolved a very strong psychology to avoid pathogens. And what that yeah, means is For my young audience, that, can you just explain viruses and, and bacteria? Sure. So pathogens, just so they... Pathogens are, you know, they could be germs and viruses, yeah. any sort of, anything that can make you sick, whether it's a bacteria or virus, it doesn't matter the exact origin of it. If, if something can make me sick, then it's something that I behaviorally want to avoid. And we've we've evolved emotions that protect us from pathogens. The strongest one is disgust. You know, when you see vomit on the ground, you walk away from it. Yeah. It smells bad to you. When you see blood, open wound, it's gross and you don't want to be near it because if somebody else's open wound is a threat to you, vomit on the ground is a threat to you. Those of our ancestors who go, ooh, vomit, that smells delicious. They're the ones who didn't make it because they ended up eating it and getting sick and dying, right? And so we have the strong emotion of disgust to protect us from pathogens, but that's not the only thing we have. As the pathogen density gets greater, we get more and more avoidant of other groups. So in, in high pathogen parts of the world, people tend to stick tightly to their own clan. They avoid other groups. You, in, in high pathogen parts of the world, we have more languages, we have more religions, because everybody's keeping to themselves. And so, or they're very small family type groups. And we happen to be in that right now with our pandemic, right? It's causing us all to be a little bit leery of others. And at the same time that we're leery of others, now these big events happen in the United States. Um, they, they have a president who I personally despise. Um, you know, it's- You and many others, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's my personal opinion. I mean, I respect the people that have different political opinions, but I personally think he's terrible. And he's not trying to bring people together. Rather, he's he's used racism as a way to try to get whites in America who are aware that soon enough they're going to be a minority. And those whites who care about that and want to protect that position are then tempted to, to go along with him and vote for him. And he's used that to his own advantage, but it simultaneously divides the country. And so what we see is this horrible events, like what happened to George Floyd, and and part of that is race-related, right? Because what we have is white cops um, killing a black man who was obviously, A, defenseless, and B, not a threat. Yeah. But part of that is you also see that police often strongly overreact with violence when people don't follow their authority. And you, the, a very notable example, I don't know if you saw the video from Buffalo, where the 75-year-old white guy went up to the police, the, oh, yeah, the they, riot squad, as they're marching along. Yeah. And they knocked him down, and then they basically walked around him. Well, what's so remarkable is the two police officers who pushed him over, which they had no reason to do. They could say, stand aside, sir, or they could gently move him aside. He's not a threat, right? The, the, when the two police officers who pushed him over have now been um, censured for that, and they may get in trouble, the other 57 officers in their group, there's 59 of them, all resigned their group in protest. Yeah, I heard Like that. they thought that was okay. Yeah. Now, what... What that tells you is if that's how they're going to treat a member of their own group, an old defenseless white guy, if they've got any prejudice in them at all, they're going to be that much harder on a black guy who they see as a potential threat. And some of them have some prejudice in them. Some of them probably don't. The notion is they're just way too violent. And so not all of them, obviously, but lots of them. And they also gather, they protect their own when they are. Yeah. And so they're so in the tribe in, in think, itself. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in a big way, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's again, they've evolved this tendency to rally around to support each other. It's the same thing you see in army units. I work with the Australian army and you see the same thing, especially guys who've been in combat. Now, of course, police officers on a riot squad, they see themselves as people who are likely to be in combat and may have even 
been in difficult situations, right? Many times. And so they have this tight bond with each other. And even if they don't necessarily approve of what one person's done, they're not going to step out and come against them. And so it's a real problem. Mm. But, but that doesn't mean that race relations worldwide are a real problem. What that means is that we've got a particular problem with the way um, law enforcement is done. And I, I'm a very optimistic person, but I, all, I really hope and believe that lots of good is going to come of this, yeah, that, that so. George Floyd is going to be like that. You remember that man in Tunisia who self-immolated mm-hmm. um, when, he, when they tried to they knock down his food stall because I, could, I can't remember if he wouldn't pay a bribe or whatever it was, but he lit himself on fire. Yeah. committed suicide and that's what sparked the entire Arab Spring. The, uh, yeah, I still get the vision now. Yeah. 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 And it, you know, how many guys had been beaten and tortured before him and nothing came of it. And then suddenly it was the straw that broke the camel's back. Well, I'm hopeful that, that George Floyd will play that role in America and that really some good will come of it because you see marching all over the world now yeah. here in Australia, there well in London. Yeah. Yeah. They're in London. Yeah. And so everyone's become so much more aware of the problem. And, and like, for example, in um, in New York, I don't know if you remember Eric Garner, the guy who was selling cigarettes. Yes, I remember. And the, the yeah. guy got him a chokehold and killed him. Well, that police officer, the New York law is such that you cannot report how many times a police officer has had complaints about him in the past. You're not. That's private information. The public's not allowed to have it. Oh. So even when he went to trial, the, the jury had no idea that he had something like 17 complaints of excessive violence already lodged against him, but nobody knew. Yeah, same, well, what's same already happened? Um, George Nick. Yeah, same exact thing in Minneapolis. And so, but in New York, the, the state legislature has now voted to change that law. And Cuomo says he'll sign it into law that now they can open up the police records and they can make it available to people because they're realizing, well, maybe there's some benefits to having some protections for police, but we've swung, the pendulum swung way too far the other way and we need to change the way things are done. And so it's it's my hope that they'll start to make, we know, for example, that when you want to treat prejudice, let's say in job hiring or in school, the way we do it is we try to get rid of subjective judgments. We try to say, well, all right, what are the tasks that you need to do to be able to be hired? Well, let's have them do those actual tasks. Yeah. Let's not have just a conversation where you can talk to each other that's very subjective. And when you do that, discrimination tends to disappear because the person performs well or they don't and they get hired or they don't. Yeah. Well, right now the police can decide when to escalate. And now they're talking about having much firmer rules where you can't do X unless the perpetrator does Y. And there, there's no, you're never going to have a rule. You can sit there with your knee on his neck while he's not doing anything wrong. And so you know that that kind of thing will be way less likely to happen in future yeah. when you have these set rules of what you are and are not allowed to do. Yeah. I, I definitely think that, um, this movement and um, what happened to Joy will serve as a catalyst because I think I, I definitely don't think well th- there's been a talk about him being a martyr and there's people making um, arguments on either side I think at the end of the day he serves as a catalyst for everything that's systematically wrong in in the world as, as a whole so um, I think it, it opens up conversations it opens up investigation I hope the momentum can be kept and things are do really change because I think with a lot of these institutions as well they, the incentivizations are wrong what's being incentivized is very wrong because if you look at the police system they've got quotas like how can a system which is there to serve and protect the people have a quota that means you're forcing yeah. you're forcing people yeah. to behave in a way which is not adequate to what they're supposed to do so if i have a quota to arrest 10 people a day i'm going to search for 10 people and, and, right. and if if we do have these innately built biases culturally racially i'm going to search for people that don't look like me 
Yeah. And, and that's what's happening. And then I'm going to mistreat these individuals because the incentivization is completely wrong on all angles. It's like if you're so, for instance, like I, we were discussing earlier on about school systems and the schooling I went to. Some schools are being given money just to keep running. They're not being given money to perform. Their teachers are not being paid to perform. Yeah. The yeah. system, the institution is not being paid to perform. And that's a major issue when we're incentivizing bad behaviors. This, that's exactly right. And, there's, and one of the interesting things about the modern world that we live in is... is <clears throat> what I believe caused this one to be a catalyst. So if you look at the events that had just happened before, like Brianna Taylor, I think Taylor. her name was, was killed in her own home, all these bad things. But but this here's a film of a guy doing this, and he like looks right into the camera, like yeah. what I'm doing is no big deal. He like a psychopath. And yeah. Yeah, he does. And so for the first time, you've got people sitting in their home who've never had a negative interaction with a police officer in their life, who may or may not be that fond of black people, but they're going, holy cow, that's disgusting, right? You, you have to basically be a clan member to look at that and go, he, he gets what he deserves, right? Everybody else, everybody else is going to feel empathy to the guy who's being um, so badly abused by the police. This, this guy who so callously and casually is choking someone to death. Yeah. And so if we didn't have that on camera, later on, there'd be no, 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 no. And in fact, up, I don't know if you're... Yeah, in the Buffalo case, the police officers first said the guy fell down. It wasn't until they produced the video, he did not fall down, you guys shoved him down that they admitted that they did it. And so it's it's a nice advantage of the modern world. It's ghastly. I can't even bring myself to watch that. I've seen it still. I can't bring myself to watch the video. But it's a it's a really positive thing about our modern world that everyone's living room is now, they can see this happening and they can say, no, you know, I... I couldn't believe a cop would do that, but now I'm watching it and it's really mm. happening. And so it just removes all the bias that they might have other had, otherwise had in interpreting it. And it, it creates a catalyst that might not otherwise have been. Yeah, and technology has been a major catalyst in this as well. Having like civilian journalism, that's been that's yeah. been a lifesaver and that's been a game changer as well. Because had that 17 year old girl not been there to film it and, and screaming and shouting at them that the person is dying, this would have been completely swept under the carpet. Yeah. And I definitely don't think those those cops would have been prosecuted. And I think it would have been brushed off as a, an, an aggressive um, um, yeah. black man who was restrained by police and then died. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately died like, as they were scuffling. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and, and the same thing is happening all over right now in the protests. All sorts of police officers are being arrested because of citizen videos of them breaking, of using excessive force. And so it's... It's this technology might actually, for the first time, be critical in changing everything because it provides such an objective view of what's happening. You know, all humans are biased, and so if I'm sitting at home and imagine that I slightly prefer white people to black, but I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit racist, but not very. I'm a typical kind of. I would never do anything mean to anybody, but I've, I have a bias toward my group. And you tell me about this happened. I go, oh, there's no way a police officer would have done that. I know lots of them and they're friendly people. And I just keep denying it and there'll be no change. But now when I'm forced to see what happened, yeah. it's eye-opening no matter how I felt. And and then that leads to change. Yeah, most definitely. And, and I hope it, it continues and, and the shift does really happen for the for the good. Um, so you're just discussing social media and its impact in all of this as well. Um, one thing I've realized with social media is as well, it's created a lot of subgroups now. There's like yeah. so many sub-tribes. There's, there's tribes that yeah. we were unaware of just a couple of years ago, just five, ten years ago, a decade or so. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's having a... I don't know if it's necessarily having a negative effect, but it's, it's with, with more groups, does that have a bad implication on society? Or where, where does yeah, that so it's up? both good and, it's good and bad. And so you could imagine a world where there's only two different kinds of humans. Um, 
light and dark skinned, Jewish and Christian, choose any group that exists. Imagine everybody's one or the other. It would be very hard to overcome that identity. It would be very difficult for you to say, well, you know, there's only one difference between humans and you're not the same as me. But when there's a thousand differences between humans, then mm. probabilistically, you and I have 950 of those in common, and we only have 50 of those different. And so when we're both at the Arsenal game together, we're brothers. When we're both eating our favorite pizza and it's the same one, we're brothers. When we're on our favorite podcast site, we're brothers. We're only not brothers when it comes to maybe the color of our skin or two other things. And so the more ways that you and I can be alike... And these cross-cutting categories, we have the same job, we like the same team, we like the same food, uh, we like the same music. The more ways that we can be alike, the easier it is to forget the few ways that we're not alike. So I actually think, you know, the more tribes, the better. Because in the end, they all become tribes of one. And, and in essence, they're not even tribes anymore. And we all kind of can blend much more harmoniously. Now, when I was a little kid... No, sorry, go I think so. When I was a little kid, I thought that within a hundred years, we would all be light brown because everybody would have interbred and, and maybe that's still gonna happen, but not as fast as I thought it would. Yeah. Um, I remember telling my parents that racism will be over by the time I'm old because there will all be basically the same race and the same color. And, and humans don't move around that much and we have a tendency to be with those, we fall in love with those that were nearest. And there's lots of reasons why that hasn't happened. Although it still may, it just takes time. But even if color went away, there would be something else, right? Yeah. And so, I actually think it's a good thing if there's a good thousand something else's because it's true that it gives me lots of reasons to dislike you, but probabilistically, it gives me a lot more reasons to like you. Okay, so it means that we're more likely to find something that links us together yeah. if there's a vast pool yeah. to select from. Okay, was that a part of like our natural evolution for it to lead this way where we have so many subgroups? That's a good question. I don't really know. I mean, you know, if you think about what the environment in which we evolved in, so if we go back 6 million years up to 10,000 years ago, all of us lived in these very small nomadic bands, maybe 30 people, sometimes as many as 70 or even 100, but that was rare, maybe sometimes only 15, but that was a little bit rare too. You're in these smallish groups just noodling around together, not covering that much ground, never really leaving the, the, the kind of geography of the size of London for most of us, just scattered around those areas. Yeah. And so we didn't, no one wondered what you were going to do for a living. Nobody ever said, oh, what do you want to do when you grow up? You know, I want to be a hunter-gatherer. That's what everybody does, yeah. right? <laughs> so there, there, there weren't groups that we were, we didn't really, we knew of maybe one or two other groups that were kind of us and then one or two other that kind of weren't because the groups that we were in tended to break up and then reform all the time. So if you look at, for example, the Hadza who live in Tanzania, um, they're still hunter-gatherers and that's, that's kind of the cradle of humanity there. They, there's lots of Hadza, but they, formed groups that might be in a camp together for a few weeks up to a few months and then the camp breaks and they may all go off together but they may go off in two different groups and join up with others mm -hmm. and so we call that fission fusion the kind of joining and, and unjoining now they never join with non-hadza so it would always be people that they know in their broader network and that's what we tended to do for all of history only in the last 10,000 years since the invention of agriculture have we settled down built cities, and then suddenly encountered all sorts of people who are not members of our own groups. And in the, it, in the beginning, that must have been really hard. Like, who the heck are you? I'm not used to dealing with strangers. I know everybody. And now suddenly I don't. But over time, we kind of found a way to make that work. It took thousands of years. And I actually think, if you look at, at Europe, for example, they were, they were using cereals, you know, that they were eventually going to grow themselves for 20,000 years before they planted their own. 
you know, why would it take so long? It's not rocket science to shove a seed in the ground. But I think it took so long because the psychology didn't fit. You know, they they weren't accustomed to all the kinds of changes that were going to come when you start, when you stop being nomadic, when you start growing things, and then you get larger groups and all those kinds of private property, all these things that basically never existed for our ancestors. So our ancestors didn't worry about group membership. There was their immediate group. There was their larger linguistic group that was their friends and relatives that they had encountered. And then there were everybody else who was maybe good and maybe bad, you know, possibly a threat, but those everybody else's weren't encountered very often. Yeah. Um, so um, I, I was, I was speaking to my sisters about something quite um, interesting as of recently. And um, we're, we're talking about sort of like content that we're consuming. And we, we all came to the consensus that we have an obsession with um, negativity at the moment. Like if you check most of our like internet history, forget the last six, seven months, that's just absolute hell. But <laughs> even right. prior to that, it was all, it's, we're drawn to the negative. Is that innately built in us? That, that was the personal question that I wanted to understand. Because yeah, I don't, I don't want to go is. online and watch people happy. No, I do. I'm, I'm a happy person in general. But <laughs> right. if you check my internet history, you would assume that I'm dark and I like, I like watching things burn. And right. it, it seems to be the same across yeah. board for everyone. So the, uh, uh, one of my good friends and colleagues wrote a paper called Bad is Stronger Than Good. And it's a very important paper, and it, it sums up all that we've learned over the last you know, 50 years in psychology, that we attend to the bad a lot more than we attend to the good. And there's reason for that. You know, If I have a good day on the hunt, I, and I capture and kill an animal, well, I've fed my family for another day. So that's a good thing. You know, I want to feed them. If I have no luck, we're a little hungrier, but we're still around tomorrow. If I have a bad day and I get gored by an animal or worse yet killed by it, well, that's the end of me. So bad things have a lot more power to disrupt than good things have to help. And as a consequence, we become very oriented toward the bad. The bad automatically captures our attention, and the bad is much better remembered than the good because it's so important. One bad, one one bullet to the head can ruin the rest of your days, <laughs> yeah. whereas you know, one really, imagine the best possible day you could have. Yeah. It, it's not going to last for the rest of your life. It, it Nothing, no day is that good. It, it might be a great week, but a great week compared to the worst possible thing that could ever happen. They're just wildly incommensurate. So, so it's more and like so a survival we, mechanism, it seems. It is, it yeah. is. And it's unfortunate. It makes us forget that the world is actually becoming so much of a better place. Mm. And so Steve Pinker, who's one of my heroes, he has this lovely book called Enlightenment Now. And he goes through all the ways that the world has become a better place. And it doesn't matter what you look at. The world has gotten better over any time span that you choose. You know, all we need to do go, is go back a, a little over 100 years ago, and 90% of the world was illiterate and in abject poverty. Now 10% of the world is illiterate and in abject poverty. Well, that's still way more than we'd like, but 10% is a lot better than 90%, right? Most humans have improved their situation dramatically. And so, but we don't notice that. You know, what we notice is the murder that happens here, the bad news that happens there, despite the fact that our world is so much safer now than it ever was before. Everything is so much better. There's, if you were to be, you know, imagine that you could have a conversation before you're born and decide when and where you're going to be born. You would choose to be born on Earth in almost any country now over any time that's ever existed in the past because the world is so much safer and it's so much better. It's so much healthier and it's so much more opportunity than it's ever had. But it's really easy to forget that. It's really easy to not notice that because of the individual bad things that happen each day. 
And I think obviously globalization and also the internet plays a part in us being able to then hone in on the negativity because yeah. the message is so easily passed on. So it's easier to see the, the 10% of people that are suffering than it would have been yes. had it not been the, the technology involved. But it, doesn't that enable us also to rectify what is wrong by us being able to identify it easier? Is that a case that we're kind of grinding ourselves towards fixing those issues? And that's maybe why the focus is on the negative. That's a very good point. And so we become very intolerant of things that we used to just put up with because they, when the world was more dangerous, they didn't seem like a big deal. So when I was a little kid in, um, in my kindergarten class, we had a carpool and the person who was driving my carpool this day was a police officer. And so we're all in the back of his car, but none of us has seatbelts on because in 1968, nobody had seatbelts in the yeah, back of their car. <laughs> and he goes around, a, yeah, exactly. We go around a corner all the little kids lean on me. I'm against the door. I'm trying to hold them back, but I can't. And I bump the door handle, the door opens, and I fall out and roll across the street. Um, now, no car hits me because out of good luck, I bounce into the into the ditch before anyone behind me runs me over. So he brings me home, and my clothing is torn, and I'm scratched and bruised and dirty. And he says to my mom, I'm really sorry. Billy fell out of the car. And I go, imagine how you'd react if somebody brought your kid home <laughs> at age five. I'll lose it. <laughs> You lose it, you freak out. Yeah. And my mother looked at me and he goes, ah, don't worry about it, he looks fine. Yeah. Because people fell out of cars all the time in those days. And so it wasn't that big of a deal. But eventually, as the world becomes safer, we become less and less tolerant of those bad things that do happen. And we say, well, let's invent a car device that'll prevent you from falling out of the car. And let's yeah. invent a car seat that'll make it safer. And you know, we, we start to ratcheting up where what before was seemed like not that big of a deal, starts to become seeming like an enormous tragedy. Yeah. And there's there's negative consequences of that. A lot of people think that young people today are more likely to be anxious and depressed than they were in my era because mm -hmm. they're so coddled, because the world is so safe and people are so worried about feelings and things like that. When we had bigger fish to fry, we were worried about falling out of cars and, mm -hmm. and dying from illnesses and things. But I'd say that's a good cost, right? That we that we ratchet up what we call a harm. Yeah. Um, when I was a little kid, you know, you know full well there were there were lots of laws that black people couldn't do the same thing whites could. That was the civil rights era in the 1960s. Gay people couldn't do any of the kinds of things that straight people could do. There was no nastier slur that you could use when I was little than to call somebody homosexual. That that was the the that meanest thing you could say to somebody. Yeah. It was terrible. You wouldn't use that word. There was a different word you used. Mm. But and and I didn't know that I knew any gay people because of course who would come out of the closet in a world where that's the yeah. meanest thing you could say about somebody. And so. When I was in high school, I learned for the first time that a friend of mine was gay when he was dying of AIDS and his family was trying to tell everyone that he had that he had pneumonia or something. He's like, no, I want my friends to know. And it blew my mind that I even knew anyone who's gay, right? Other than, you know, on TV or some random, but like my personal group of friends. And of course, as time gone by, I've learned that I have lots of friends who are gay because as the world gets gentler and we become more friendly to them, they're more likely to come out of the closet. And then of course that makes the world gentler still. Because you suddenly realize your daughter or best friend or whatever is gay. Yeah. And then you think, well, why would I be negative against these people? I love them. And so it, it self-perpetuates this virtuous cycle. And that's happening across the board. And you can, if, you, if you're looking at the world right now, it doesn't feel that way with all the chaos and all the dissension and the pandemic on top of it. But it is. It's still a much better world than it was when I was a child. Yeah. It's, that's amazing. Actually, you brought up that point and, and talking about how the world was, um, because w one of the things that I've noticed as well is that now we're looking back at history and, and judging history based on based on our current beliefs and based on like our yeah. current evolution and our current development. Is that wrong to do? Because I, I'm caught up in two minds. I, I do. 
I do know the horrible things have happened in history, which is having an impact on us now, especially when, you, when we're looking at race relations now and the history of black people and slaves and, and even history of like homosexuals, as you mentioned, and all the people that have suffered throughout history. But when you look at certain things, um, so going back to the race relations now, when it's having a, a, an effect on a whole system, which is impacting the people, do we then look back at history and judge everyone and everything within history for what happened during a time when things were considered the norm? Do we bring that forward? And is that is that is that is that um, is that a good thing to do? Is that a rational thing to do? Yeah, I think it's not. And so lots of people say things like, "Well, Abraham Lincoln was a racist," and by today's standards, he's wildly racist. He believed blacks were inferior to whites, but he staked his reputation and his entire life on trying to end slavery. I'm trying to improve the lot of black people. And so for his time, he was wildly anti-racist. Now imagine fast forward to now, here we are today, and imagine people 100 years from now looking back on us. Have you ever in your life walked by a homeless person and not given them a dollar? You probably have. I know I have. Imagine a world where they've solved homelessness and they're aghast at the possibility that you could see someone who doesn't have a home and you don't give them everything you have. Well, we would all be judged as horrible people in that future world. And that future world may well come to pass. And so I think it's super important that you have to judge people by the world in which they actually lived. And so I don't think that Abraham Lincoln was a racist at all. I think he was an anti-racist crusader. I think that if you look at, you know, almost anybody from that time period, you're going to say, well, boy, Martin Luther King was great in these ways, but his attitudes toward gays or whatever were were really retrograde. Well, that's, in my mind, irrelevant. You have to judge him by the times that he lived, because I certainly wouldn't want to be judged in all the things, the the wrong things that I've done and the callous things that I've done, because that's just how our world is now. I don't want to be judged 100 years from now as being this horrible person because I was just like everybody else. Yeah, and the circumstances which Abraham Lincoln lived in as well, he was probably fighting, but he was well, he was there because he got he got taken out for it. But he was yeah. the, the fight back and and the the environment in which he stood to to stand up for black people must have been extremely hostile. And I can only imagine how how brave you would have to come out and be like, oh yeah, by the way, I want to free black people and and I like to yeah. see them as equal. Just that alone, the pressure and the point you just brought up actually right now just up so many um thoughts and and flashbacks into my head in regards to like homeless people because there's been loads of times where i've walked past with my friends and be like well i want to buy him a sandwich but i know he won't want that and i want to give him some money but if i do he's probably going to go and buy some drugs and that's been that's been the thought process in my mind at times and that's been my justification for not wanting to give money to the homeless person so i'm like oh no he's going to buy some drugs anyway i'm not going to give him no money but um, if we go forward in the future and we do live in a utopia where homelessness is not a thing i might get judged based on that action they might watch a cctv footage of me brushing off a homeless man being like oh my gosh look at this horrible human being 200 yeah. years ago this person yeah. and his family should should be should be scorned in society and it's very scary when we look at history that way but at the same time i also think there's certain parts of history that needs to be acknowledged and um rectified yes. to an extent we yes. can't completely rectify stuff but no. if there's no if there's no level of recognition and atonement for it it can cause issues and i think that plays a part in sort of like infusing the racial tension that we're having currently which is a bit tricky you know what I mean? So. Well, I would agree with that. And I would also say that you still need to, you should still judge people, but you need to judge them by the standards of their time. Yeah, and so if everybody was sexist in those days and he was somewhat sexist, well, then you don't say that makes him a bad person. Mm. But if he was a little bit less sexist than everybody else, even if he might be sexist by today's standards, mm. well, then you really are impressed. So, you know, Madame Curie and her husband, Pierre Curie, both won the um, Nobel Prize. He wouldn't accept his until it was also given to his wife. 
Now that would that would have been super rare back then. So he's a he's wildly feminist by those by today's standards. I bet you five bucks that when he got home, he expected her to have dinner on the table and he expected her <laughs> yeah. to clean up and you know all that. And we shouldn't yeah. judge him on that. We should be impressed by yeah. the things that he did that were better than his times, and we should not be. Um, denigrating for the things that he did were typical, but that but that's across the board. You've got people who were, you know, trying really hard to in, to enhance civil rights or whatever the particular cause was, and those people are very impressive, even if by today's standards they might look pretty retrograde. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Um, so just a couple more questions before I let you go. Sure, of course. Your day because I'm sure it's it's a bit late over there, isn't it for you? It's getting a little late. Yeah. Are you an early sleeper? <laughs> I am. I'm getting old. Uh, my apologies. <laughs> you look young, though. You're looking great. No, I'm happy to chat with you. Don't worry about that. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Um, I, just, I just wanted to know, so, like, because I know, I, I think the, the video that I got of you initially, which was sent to me by um, one of the mentees, was one in where you were giving a few tips in relations to how we can live happier lives, I think it was. What, what, what were those points, again, if you don't mind sharing them with my... Sure, of course. So, you know, in the same way that we evolved to be tribal and to have this proclivity to be leery about members of other groups, we also evolved to do things that were in our the best interest of our genes to make it most likely that we could become a successful parent. And, and the things that are in the best interest of our genes are the things that are likely to make us happy. So if you went into a restaurant and you ordered this delicious dinner and they brought you something that's loaded with fat, salt, and sugar, it's gonna taste really, really good to you because our ancestors struggled to get enough fat, salt, and sugar out there on the savanna. And so we all evolved a desire for it. It makes us happy to eat it. If they brought you a dog turd on a plate, you're gonna be disgusted because yeah. anyone who eats that is eating a high pathogen load and they're likely to get sick. So the same happiness works that way across the board. So we tend to be happiest when we're in close personal relationships because that's what made us a success. We tend to be happiest when we're cooperating with each other. So, you know, your your workplace may or may not be a job that you actually enjoy. You know, you may be stocking at the grocery store and that's not terribly interesting. Or you may get to do something a lot more fun like your podcast. But whatever you're doing if you're cooperating with others and working together as a team, that's what we evolved to do. And so that's going to make you happier if you can find ways to cooperate to achieve whatever your goals are at work and your goals outside of work, you know, joining a team that plays soccer or checkers or bingo or whatever it is that you like to do. The, um, those of our ancestors who formed long-term pair bonds um, with somebody that they loved, that was the best way to bring up children. And so we tend to be happiest when we get into good relationships. If we get into bad relationships, they, they make us unhappy. But, and so it's not, you can't just pair up with anybody. But if you pair up with the right person, that tends to be something that has a positive impact on our long-term happiness. The, um, you know, we also, in our, our ancestral past, it, when we encountered somebody new who might, we might be able to have children with, it gave us sort of insurance policy, new genes in our offspring. And so novelty is always really alluring to us. But there wasn't the kind of novelty that exists today. And so now it's really much more difficult to maintain a long-term relationship because there's so many other people who look kind of interesting and they might be the right one for you. And that's why we get more divorces in cities than we do in the countryside. Because in the city, there's all those options out there and the countryside, not so many. And so these are the battles that we face where our these evolved proclivities that we have are often not quite a really good match for the modern world that we live in. Yeah. Um, but, but it is the case that the things like the standard things like friendship going out and, and especially friendship over a meal, storytelling, you know, learning about each other's days and the interesting things happened in their life, um, forming long-term pair bonds, uh, you know, with a partner who we really um, compatible with, all those things are going to make us happy. And then the one piece of advice that I would add is that 
we also evolve not to stay permanently happier. We, we all have the sort of baseline level of happiness, which for most of us is kind of moderately content. And the reason for that is that that way we're always motivated to try to achieve more. And so if you, know, you, if you, if you were super duper happy all the time, well, you've got no reason to ever leave your cave and go kill that mastodon. Yeah. And then your, your group is gonna decide you're not much worth to them. And so they're gonna leave you behind. But if you're moderately happy, but always motivated to go out there and achieve more, then the group is going to value you more. And so what that means is that our happiness is designed that when something good happens, we get happier, but then we go right back to baseline. Okay. And it's it's really hard to get your head around that. You feel like, oh, if I could just get her to go out with me, I'll be happy forever. If I could just get that big raise, I'll be happy forever. If I could buy that fancy home, I'll be happy forever. No, it doesn't work that way. You get a little happier and you go right back. You get a little happier and you go right back. Because that's how evolution made us, with the single exception that really, really good relationships can make us happier, and not permanently, big spike, but permanently happier than we were before. Okay. And so that's always the advice I give is find really good friends and a really good life partner if you can, if you get lucky, and that will permanently increase your happiness. Oh, that's amazing. So, so that would be a part of the process of making the world a better place. So if we're making yeah. ourselves happier, we're making ourselves better, then we're then a yeah. able to make our families happier, make our communities, and thus making the world better. Um, there's something interesting that I've learned since um, I started the podcasting and, and getting involved heavily within the communities that um, I realized that um, once you strip everyone off of all of this, uh, all of these other ideologies and identity, human beings are very interesting creatures. Like we're very interesting on an individual level like everyone has a fantastic story uh, they, their own life story their own journey something that they might find trivial might be extreme of extreme interest to someone else someone might be extremely intrigued by it and i only realized that when i started telling my story and pe people that i would assume were like more way more intelligent than me people that were older than me people that I thought had more experience than me when i told them little bits about my story they're like oh my gosh tell me more and it could be something simple like i was born in ghana for instance and then i moved to sweden where i was the only black kid then i moved to bang in the middle of London where there was only one white kid in my class and it's right. like I've been through so many various cultures and so many various situations and when I start sharing that story that I thought was trivial people find it interesting and when people start sharing, sharing their stories that they find trivial I'm like wow it's so interesting so I realized that human beings we're really interesting people and what once we're able to shed some of the things that keep us apart and we're able to engage with each other and have conversations that are like this and that are organic we tend to find more common ground and we tend to find more interest and more understanding of our our cultures and enables us to become better towards each other and more friendlier so we're able to engage in no, a bit that, well. that's absolutely right and yeah. human beings are fundamentally most of us are lovely people you know yeah. we all have our quirks and, and imperfections but mostly humans are good and humans mostly are very interesting to each other i'm not sure if that alien when they finally come by the end of this year <laughs> will find us interesting or not yeah. but we evolved to find each other interesting we want to get inside each other's heads we want people to know what we're thinking and we want to know what they're thinking everybody finds each other's life stories really interesting because once we know that we work together more effectively as a team so we're the only animal on earth that literally evolved to be interested in the thoughts of other members of our species we want to know yeah. and of course that makes life fun and interesting, especially when we live in the world we live in now. Because if you and I were having this conversation 100,000 years ago, well, we would have had the exact same experiences whether we grew up in the same group or not, because everyone's a hunter-gatherer. Yeah. But now you can have a life that's completely different from my own, and I can find it fascinating as I learn about your life, and you can find it as interesting as you learn about mine. You know, I, I was born in Alaska. It's about as far oh, wow. from Ghana as you can get, right? Yeah, yeah. And so... <laughs> And so it's just, there's all that unique human experience that was only brought around, you know, in the kind of modern world that we live in, where A, we spread across the globe, and B, we can now 
you and I can have a conversation from 10,000 miles apart. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, just one last question before I finally let you sure. go. I, know I said one last question ages ago. So how, <laughs> how do we, how, how can we come together? So at the moment, it seems to be a big divide. What would you, what would you, let's say you had, you were tasked with coming up with a solution in, in terms of like the, the trial. <laughs> I know it's a hard yeah. one and um, you don't necessarily have to answer it, but if you had an idea, what, what would you, what would the idea be? So first of all, um, I'm better at identifying problems than I am at fixing them, right? That's, <laughs> yes. that's sort of the unfortunate thing about our field. And I would say that fundamentally, like we were just saying before, fundamentally humans are good and fundamentally humans are cooperative and fundamentally they want to get to know each other. And so the most successful way that you can actually make people um, put aside their prejudices is to, is to let them meet the people that they think they don't like. Yeah. Because even this works on the internet, you'll be flaming somebody, you know, you see these people put on their caps lock and they write these really, yeah. really mean things to each other. Have they ever said that to anyone in real life in their entire life? Of course not. Yeah. You know, you, you don't talk to people like that, but it's when you're at a distance, you can. And so what we find over and over again is that you get, you get together with people who you thought you would have nothing in common with. So personally, I, you know, I just, I think Trump is just a, such a disaster and I can't understand why anyone would like him. But I have friends who think he's great mm. and, and they're still my friends because I find that we have lots in common. We, I, we tend not to talk about that because it just creates yeah. conflict. But the truth of the matter is they're still good people. They just see the world differently than I do and there's still good reason for us to be able to get along. And I find that more and more people who thought they didn't like members of Group X, when they meet members of Group X, they go, oh, you're kind of like me with some interesting quirks and differences. They're not like, oh, you're a horrible, ghastly person. That almost never happens. And so one of the great things about the world becoming richer and technology becoming better is we can start to be in people's homes all the time. You know, you and I are in each other's homes right now, even though we're thousands of miles apart. And the more we can do that, the more now when, like imagine that I saw on the video later today, someone bashing you over the head, I go, what happened to my friend Francis? You know, you're not, you're no longer this black guy who I don't know. You're a friend of mine or, or a friend of a friend of mine. You know, we become interconnected. And I, I believe that as we become less rural and we, you know, humans are all over moving to cities. And when that happens, we encounter people who don't look like us and we start to become more tolerant and we become more open-minded because boy, all those things I thought were true really aren't. These people aren't like they're depicted on the media or whatever. And I think everything gets better and prejudice diminishes it won't go away and when conflict starts again you know if england and australia meet in the rugby finals suddenly you, you and i will get longer ahead <laughs> kicking off again yeah yeah exactly but it but it'll fade again when the conflict is over yeah professor william um i really appreciate you sharing your time and your knowledge with me today it's been super insightful i feel like i've, I've learned so much within the, the the hour or so that we've, we've been able to talk and uh, I've, I've, I've definitely got a great understanding of our evolution in terms of like the tribes and how we became what we are and how we can look forward to the future and try and engage each other more and and create a more harmonious system i really appreciate it and um thank you for your time i, I really hope that one day we'll be able to catch up again hopefully in person when you're in london or when i'm in australia because i've got loads of friends in australia funny enough but i just haven't Perfect. had the time to go and visit them and obviously that Perfect. won't happen for a while yet no. so <laughs> no. yeah We'll definitely catch up one day again in the future. I really appreciate you for coming on Let's Do Humans. And I definitely think my audience are going to find true value in everything that you shared with us today. So really appreciate it. So. Like thank you very I've much. I've enjoyed talking to time. you. Thank you. My pleasure. We'll catch up again. Take care. Hopefully you get some rest now. <laughs>